I guess we will go ahead. This is uh, part two on our topic of dealing with sins. We started this last week since we finally finished the book of Romans a couple weeks ago. Um, and then we might have one more lesson next week on this topic. Uh, but last week we talked about dealing with personal sins right, and some uh, Bible verses that help you overcome them, um, such as Romans 6 where it talks about reckoning yourself dead, right? Your old man has been crucified with Christ. You just have to remember who you are in Christ and walk in light of that, right? Not focusing on who you used to be, but who you are now in Christ and remembering your old man is dead. And you have to acknowledge that, right, on a daily basis. Your flesh is dead, right? That's not who I am. I follow after who I am in Christ. So that's how you deal with your personal sins. And we gave uh, some different verses on that. Uh, this week, we're going to be uh, defining sins, talking about how sins can change throughout dispensations, right, based on God's instructions, and then how to sin, uh, deal with sins in the church based on uh, individual sins. If someone's in the church and they're living a wicked life or whatever, uh, how do you deal with that? Uh, so defining sins. Um, simple definition is sin is unrighteousness. First John 5 verse 17 says, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. So he says, all unrighteousness is sin. Paul gives several lists of unrighteousness. So if you want specific sins, uh, you can go to Romans 1, 29 through 32, where he talks about those being filled with all unrighteousness, and then he gives this list of sins or unrighteousness. Uh, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So he gives this list of unrighteousness. Uh, interesting one, I think, is without understanding, right? Someone who's ignorant, without understanding. Uh, that's a sin because we have the Word of God, right? We can have understanding. We don't have to be ignorant. Uh, so if you aren't reading the Word of God, learning from it, that not having that understanding, he says, is a sin, right? They were without understanding. Uh, another place is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 10. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So there's another list of specific sins, right? Thieves, uh, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, fornicators, right? These are unrighteous acts, right? These are sins. Um, so there's a couple of lists in your Bible of unrighteousness, of specific sins. Uh, but I would say a good definition is sin is disobedience to God and fulfilling the desires of our flesh. Uh, so if you go to Romans 5, 12, right, you think about sin entering the world, it was Adam and Eve disobeying God. Right? He instructed them not to do something, and they disobeyed him. 
Instead, they fulfilled their desires, right? They were deceived. Satan deceived them, saying, oh, you'll be like God, right? And their flesh wanted to be like God, and they fulfilled that desire, right? So that was how sin entered. Uh, it says here in Romans 5, 12 through 14, uh, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For unto the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Uh, Galatians five nineteen through 21 talks about the works of our flesh. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So there again, another list of right, the works of the flesh. Right, when we feel our desires that our flesh has, right, it's unrighteousness. Right? Our flesh it's just our sin nature, right? We desire things that are unrighteous because it makes our flesh happy, right, in the moment. Um, and so we are to walk in the spirit, is his point there in that context, not after our flesh, right? Um, and then Ephesians two, one through three. So he's talking to save people here. He says, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. All right, so before you're saved, you're walking after the lust of your flesh, right? Fulfilling what you want what your flesh wants, right? And he says, by nature, we were the children of wrath. Right? So again, it's our sin nature in us. That's who we are. We fulfill the desires of our flesh. Right? Somebody tells us to do something, we don't want to do it. We rebel against them, right? Because that's not what I want to do, right? Um, we want to fulfill our desires and what our flesh wants. And of course, again, the principle is, as a Christian, we need to walk as who we are in Christ, fulfilling what he would have us do. Right, would, he would have us be. We walk in that, uh, not after our flesh. Uh, but that would be my definition is sin. It's disobedience to God, fulfilling the desires of our flesh. Right, you think about that first sin, uh, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God and rather fulfilled what they wanted, right? fulfilled their flesh. Um, if you look at Romans 14.23, so just giving some... Uh, like I said, defining what sin is. The question was asked last week, can there be a sin to one person that's maybe not a sin to another? Or is something that I do a sin to me, but maybe it's not a sin for you? Um, and the answer is yes, that can be the case. Uh, if you look here at Romans 14, 23, it says, He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith, 
is sin. So in the context of Romans 14, Paul's talking about unclean meats, right? And the weaker brother is the one that doesn't eat the meat, right? Because he thinks it's unclean. Well, if he here doubting that he should eat that, right? You know, like I should eat that. I think that's wrong, but eats it anyway. He's not acting out of faith, right? There's no specific instruction where God says you have to eat this meat, right? Yeah, it's clean. He says it's fine if you do, it's fine if you don't, right? There's no specific instruction there. So if your conscience says, you know, I shouldn't do that, but you do it anyway, you're not having faith, right? You're not exercising faith, especially if your belief is, I don't think I should do that. I think that's wrong. You're sinning against your conscience, right? It says whatsoever is not of faith is sin, right? So it's kind of interesting there. The answer is kind of yes. It could be a sin for you, but not for me. I know that the meat's not clean, but it doesn't matter, right? It's not clean because he talks about uh, it was offered to an idol. Well, that idol is nothing, right? It's wood. It's metal. So I'm fine eating this meat even though it was offered to that idol because that's not a god. Right? I worship the true god. So yeah, I'm going to eat this meat. Whereas the weak brother says, oh, you can't do that, you can't do that. But if that weak brother goes and eats it anyway, right, he's sinning against his conscience. So you can see how it's kind of true that it could be a sin for one person but not uh, another. So I said, is it, a, it is a sin to go against your belief. I said when there's no clear instruction from the Bible on something like that. Uh, James 4.17 It says, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So here's another one where if you know to do good and you don't do it, it says, to him it is a sin. So it's not that you did something wrong, it's that you didn't do something you should have done. So here it says, that's a sin. Uh, so those are two kind of, it's not that you did something wicked, right? It's that you either went against what you believe to be true or went against your conscience, or you didn't do something that you should have done, right? So those two are also sin. Um, so that uh, would be my definition of sins. Then I have on here dispensational sins. Uh, so if you go to 1 John 3, 4, many people use this verse to define what sin is. And I did not use this verse because I think it is dispensational. 1 John 4, 3 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Well, we transgress the law every day, but we're not living in sin, right? Because we're not under the law today. John is writing to those who were under the law, right? So sin to them is transgressing the law because God told you to keep that, right? So sin is transgression of the law for John and those that he wrote to. For us today, we're not under the law. Right? We have liberty. Paul says all things are lawful for me right? because we're not under the law. Um, so I would not use that verse to define right, what sin is today. Um, of course, you do have what people call the moral law. You do still have things that God says are unrighteous that are in the law. So if you transgress those, yes, you're sinning against God, such as murder, right? stealing, uh, adultery. Right? These things are sins against God still today. Um, even though we're not under the law, because those are moral things that he says are unrighteous, right? Uh, but Romans 6.14 tells us we are not under the law. So just because we break a law that was given, right, doesn't mean that um, we sinned. Again, going back to Romans 5, where we saw sin entering through Adam, notice what it says. 
uh, he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So when Adam sinned, there was no law, right? The law was not yet given. That wasn't given until Moses and the nation in Egypt. Uh, so how did sin enter if sin is the transgression of the law and there was no law? There with Adam, right? So again, that's a dispensational definition to those who were under the law, I feel like. Sin entered because Adam disobeyed God, right? And some people say, well, that's the law, right? He said, don't enter the tree. Well, no, that was a command. It's not the law that John is talking about. Right, and the law in the Bible is specific to what he gave Israel. Um, but just uh, making this point of dispensational sins, uh, God's moral standard never changes, but his instructions do. Uh, so again, you use the example of the unclean meats that were in the law, which you can read in Leviticus 11, 1 through 8. Where it says, The Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying unto them, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the beasts which ye shall eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Whatsoever parteth the hoof and is cloven footed and cheweth the cud among the beasts, that shall ye eat. Nevertheless, these shall ye not eat of them that chew the cud or of them that divide the hoof. As the camel, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof, he is unclean unto you. And the coney, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof, he is unclean unto you. And the hare, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof, he is unclean unto you. And the swine, though he divideth the hoof, and be cloven-footed, yet he cheweth not the cud, he is unclean unto you. Of their flesh shall ye not eat, and their carcass shall ye not touch, they are unclean unto you. So again, those under the law could not eat these animals. It would be a sin for them to do so, or they would be disobeying God. Whereas you go to 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So notice here in the context, he's talking about those uh, that will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And part of these doctrines of devils is forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. Well, the law commanded you to abstain from meats. Right? But Paul here says that's the doctrine of devil now. Right? Because all creatures are good, uh, nothing to be refused as long as it's received with thanksgiving. Right? Because it's sanctified by prayer and the word of God which is important. God has said, it's clean to you today. Right? There's nothing unclean, right? Because we're not under that law. So it's okay if you eat pork. It's okay if you eat rabbit, right? That's not a sin today in this dispensation. So you can see how sins change based on how God's instructions change. Um, but although we are not under the law, we can still use the moral law to show one's sins. So you still have the aspect of being able to use the law to show what is unrighteousness. Right, so if you have someone who you're dealing with, uh, maybe you're trying to share the gospel, Christ died for your sins, and they say, well, I'm a good person, you know, I won't do nothing wrong. 
right? You can use the law to show them, well, have you done this, right? Go down the list. Have you lied? Have you stolen something before? Have you uh, committed uh, coveting, right? And you go down that list of the moral law to show them, right, their sin. First uh, Timothy 1, 8 through 10, Paul says, but we know that the law is good, if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for homongers, for them that defile themselves of mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. All right, so the law is good if we use it lawfully. Right, it's for the unrighteous. Right, it's, you can use it to show people who think they're righteous that they are unrighteous. Right, and show them their need for salvation, for grace. Um, so you can, you can see that sin can change based on how God's instructions change. If we go by that definition, that sin is disobedience to God. Right? Um, and so how do we deal with sins in the church? So last week we talked about right, dealing with your own personal sins. Uh, but what if you have someone in a church who is living a life of sin? Right? But maybe they're still coming to that church. Maybe they're still involved. Right, doing things, and you know they're openly living in wickedness. Right, how do you deal with that? Um, first point is we are to be forgiving. Right, Ephesians four thirty two: Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Right, so we're dealing with someone who is saved, right, who believes the gospel but is living uh, in sin. Will we be forgiving to that person? Right, maybe they did something wrong to us, still be forgiving to them. Uh, if you go to 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 10. And again, the reason you're forgiving is because Christ forgave you, right? You're showing them Christ's love, right? You're showing them grace because that's what's working in you. Because you understand the grace you've received from Christ. Your flesh, again, fulfilling the desire of the flesh is, I want to beat the snot out of that person, right? I don't ever want to talk to them. I have nothing to do with them. I wish they fell off the face of the earth, right? That's your flesh, what it desires, right? But what the Spirit would have you do is be forgiving, right? Um, Paul says this. He says, um, where am I at? 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 10. Uh, he says, but if any have caused grief, he have not grieved me, but in part that I may not uh, overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him, for to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. But if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. So it seems here maybe somebody did something against Paul. Uh, from the context, but he's telling them uh, you should forgive that person, right, as a brother in Christ. Um, he says, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him, right? So confirm the love that you have toward him as a brother in Christ and forgive him. Uh, he says, I forgave it for your sakes as a person in Christ, right? So again, as members of the body of Christ, we should forgive one another uh, when they do us wrong. Um, but what if a, a elder or a pastor is living a life of sin, right, and is not repentant of it, right? How do you deal with that? First uh, Timothy five, verse one. 
Paul tells Timothy, he says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren. So he says you entreat him as a father. Right? If you have this pastor who has that authority in the congregation, right? you don't just rebuke him in public or whatever. You entreat him as a father. right? Again, as that brother in Christ, showing your love towards him as a brother in Christ, but you come to him and bring it to his attention. right? Hey, what you're doing here is wrong. It goes against the word of God. Right? You entreat him as that, that father. Um, if you drop down to verse 19 through 20, he says, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses, them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. So this person, this elder, right, is living in sin. He has accusations against him, maybe of something. Uh, he says, make sure you have two or three witnesses, right? Make sure it's proven to be true. Don't just go at this guy because somebody says something about him. Um, but if it is true, he says, them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. He says, rebuke them before all so that others may fear. And I think that's specifically for elders, for those in leadership, because they hold that position of an example. Right? And if they're failing to live that example, you rebuke them before all to say, hey, this isn't the way a leader, right? someone who's supposed to represent Christ for us in the church, right? someone who's teaching us the Bible ought to behave. Right, so you rebuke that person before all. Uh, I think, again, that's specific to the elder. Uh, and again, in the context here, if you go a couple of verses before, he talks about how the elders that rule well are to be counted of uh, worthy of double honor. Right, so those who rule well get the double honor. He's talking about paying for them, right? giving them money for the service they do in the church. Um, they're worthy of that right? if they rule well, he says. Likewise, if they don't rule well, if they're living a life of sin, you rebuke them before the congregation so that right, they know uh, this isn't how you ought to behave. Right? We don't, uh, what's the word, condone right, the life that this pastor is living. Right? So you have that, uh, I guess, double-sided sword there. If they're worthy of being paid because they rule well, yes, they're worthy of that. But if they're living a life of sin, you rebuke them. Um, so I think that's specific to elders, uh, rebuking them before all. Uh, concerning those who are teaching wrong doctrine, if you go to 2 Timothy 2.16, so again, we often think of sin just as these wicked behaviors such as you know murder, adultery, things of that nature. You'd have these pastors who get caught in scandals. They were taking money from the church or ran off with a secretary. You, know, you hear things like this, and you're like, oh, that's just so horrible. Well, just as bad is someone who teaches false doctrine in the church because they're leading people astray. They're leading them away from the truth. Uh, if you look at 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18, Paul actually talks more about those who teach wrong doctrine than he does those who live right in wickedness. But he says, uh, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, Concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. So he calls them by name, who these two people are, who are teaching false doctrine, and says what their false doctrine is. Right? He's marking them. So when someone is teaching false doctrine, you shun them. He says, shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase into more ungodliness. So you shun them, right? You don't company with them if they're teaching wrong doctrine. And then he says, uh, their word will eat us dust the canker of whom is Hymenus and Philetus. He names them, right? He marks them. Because you have to know who's teaching false doctrine so that you can avoid it. 
right? Um, and then he says, who concerning the truth have erred, and he tells them what the doctrine is. So it's not just that Paul says, uh, avoid Hymenaeus and Philetus, I don't like them. Right? The reason is they're teaching the resurrection is past already, and they're overthrowing people's faith. Right? He deals with this in 1 Corinthians 15. Our faith is in the resurrection. Right? That's our hope. If there is no resurrection, what point is there of what we're doing here? Right? There's no hope for us. So again, that's a very important doctrine. It can overthrow people's faith, and so he's marking Hymenaeus and Philetus. So again, if you have a, a false teacher or someone who's teaching false doctrine, you mark them, right? You avoid them. You shun them. Um, you point it out. Uh, he also deals with Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20. He says, Holding the faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Um, so he says he's delivered them unto Satan. And we'll deal with what I believe that means here in a minute. Uh, Romans 16, verse 17. Uh, he says, And I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. So again, you have that marking of those who are contrary to right doctrine. He says to avoid them, right? Don't come here with them because what they teach can affect you and how you behave. Um, so you avoid them, mark them, uh, don't listen to them. Um, so that's concerning those who are teaching wrong doctrine. You mark them and you avoid them. Uh, what about concerning those who are living in wickedness? Um, if you go to 1 Corinthians 5, this whole chapter is about someone who was living in open sin among the Corinthians. We'll see what Paul says about them. Here in 1 Corinthians 5, it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that have done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him, that have uh, so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glory is not good, may ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For them must ye needs go out of the world. But now have I written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reller, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such a one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do? Do to judge them also that are without, do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So the instruction here is kick them out, basically. Right, if that person is living in this open sin, you shouldn't allow that in the church, right? Because they're living unrighteously, right? God would have us to live righteously. This person is not repentant, they're doing something that is clearly against Scripture. He says, uh, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So 
the uh, church discipline there would be to kick them out of the congregation, right? So if you have someone who you know, in this case, was living in open fornication and was boasting about it, right, he wasn't sorry. It says, kick them out. Don't have company with that person. Um, 2 Thessalonians three fourteen through 15, you see the same principle. He says, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So he says here to, again, have no company with him, so that he will be ashamed. Right, and you think about the effect that has when someone who lives in wickedness and you say, hey, I can't accompany with you, I can't be friends with you because of the way you live, you know it's wrong. Right, that brings shame on that person. They're going to be convicted because, again, if they're saved, they know what they're doing is wrong. Right? And he says not to count him an enemy. You don't do it to try to see him as an enemy, but to admonish him as a brother. Right? The point is to try to help that person. Right? Speak the truth in love, as he says in... Uh, we as Ephesians, right? We speak the truth in love to people. Uh, but sometimes that means, right, not having company with someone because of the life they live. Um, and then that phrase, deliver unto Satan, I think simply means to kick them out or to not have company with them. Uh, because you saw that with Hymenius and Philetus, where he says he had delivered Hymenius unto Satan. In Second Timothy 2.16, he says to shun them. Right, shun profane and vain babblings such as Hymenus and Philetus. So I think that delivering them to Satan is basically shunning them, not letting them have part in the congregation. Um, same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, this man who was living in open fornication, verse 2 it says, uh, Ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that have done this deed might be taken away from among you. So he's telling Corinthians, you should want this person taken out from the congregation. Um, verse 7 he says, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ is our Passover, our Passover is sacrificed for us. So he's using this uh, example of the leaven, right? That leaven represents the sin, right? You have in the Passover, they took out the unleavened, right? They had unleavened bread. So that's what he's saying here Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. This person who's among you that's living in this fornication is leaven, right? He's sin. And he says, Don't you know a little leaven can leaven the whole lump? Right, it can affect those in the congregation and cause them to sin. Well, that guy's doing this. He's boasting that nothing's happened to him. Nobody said nothing to him. I guess it's already to do. Right? That's the effect that that can have. That's why you, uh, again, kick them out. You don't have company with them. Uh, verse 9, he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Verse 11, he says, not just fornicators that are without, but fornicators within the church. And then verse 13, where he says, Put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So again, I think that delivered unto Satan simply means, like, kick them out, right? Don't have company with them. Um, let their sin basically run its course if they're not going to repent of it. Um, and then the same thing in Second Thessalonians 3.10 where he says, if they don't obey this epistle, mark that person and don't have company with that person. So again, you have that principle of, right, kicking them out if they're not going to uh, repent of their sin or openly live in unrighteousness. Um, and then church discipline is done by God's word, first and foremost. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, 
for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So again, churches, pastors need to be teaching the scripture, right? Not their opinion, not just preaching, right? God is love. He loves you, right? This nice gospel, I guess you would call it, or prosperity gospel, right? You do this, God will bless you. You need to be teaching the scripture, right? All of it, dispensationally, um, because it is the scripture that's going to ultimately correct someone, convict them, right? So church discipline is ultimately done by God's word in that person, right? Effectually working in that person. And then secondly, you see the principle that it's those in authority who would exercise that discipline too. That's the point of an elder, a pastor, is to mark those in the church who, right, maybe they can see, right, they're living in open sin or they're teaching this wrong doctrine. It's going to affect you know, people in the congregation. They help to monitor the flock in a sense, right, to be able to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong, right, to point out those things. Um, that's part of the job of a elder. Um, and again, to, to preach the word uh, correctly. Um, 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul talks about how he is their instructor in Christ. Uh, to the Corinthians, right? He would be the one over them to say, hey, kick this person out, just as he did in 1 Corinthians 5. Right? Paul, as the elder there, was telling them what to do in that situation. Um, you look at first, uh, 2 Timothy 4.2. He tells Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. So again, Timothy would have been a pastor, right? And he gives him the instruction of reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Part of what Timothy was supposed to do was to rebuke people, right? Exhort people uh, with longsuffering and doctrine, right? So again, using the word of God to do that, not just their opinion. Um, same thing with Titus verse 1, uh, Titus 1, verse 5 through 14. He tells Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless, as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he had been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Christians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men, and turn from the truth. So here, Titus, again, also an elder or pastor, Paul's telling him, I left you in um, Crete to set up other elders. And then he gives the definition of what a bishop, right, how they should live. They should be blameless, right, not soon angry, goes through that list. Uh, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he had been taught, so that the reason they need to be a person that has that good testimony, that good character, someone who is faithful to the word of God, because their responsibility is to, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. Right? That's part of their job. Um, he says, uh, verse 13, this wisdom is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, uh, that they may be sound in the faith. So part of Titus' job was to set up these elders, 
who could rebuke people, right, who were teaching false doctrine. Here specifically, it was people of the circumcision. He says that people aren't getting taken away with Jewish fables. Right? So you had people in the circumcision teaching uh, wrong things, teaching fables, and Titus' job was to rebuke them right? because Titus was the elder there. Uh, so church discipline is supposed to be done by those who are in leadership at the church. And again, it has to be someone who understands the Word of God, they're faithful to the Word of God, and they have a good testimony. Right? I think a lot of times you have just these dictators, right, who tell you how it is, and maybe they don't know the Word of God. Right? Um, so you as a member have to be able to, that's when you would entreat that person, right, that elder, as right, a father. Hey, you're saying this, but where are you getting it from the Word of God? Right? And that goes back to the point of we need church members who know the Word of God to hold the leaders accountable. Um, but we'll stop there. Uh, next week, we will probably have a part three on this. But any thoughts or questions?